Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 317, Debate with Rogers, Does Mark Teach That Jesus Is God? Part 1. On January 30th, 2021, I had a debate with Jesus is God apologist Rev. Anthony Rogers on Marlon Wilson's YouTube show called The Gospel Truth. Our debate topic, Does the Book of Mark Teach That Jesus Is the One True God? In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, opening statements and rebuttals. For your listening pleasure, I have cleaned it up a bit and shortened it just a bit. I've cut out the introductions and the advertisements for other episodes and things like that, and I have cleaned up a little bit of the crosstalk. So I think that you'll find that this is a lot easier to listen to than the live YouTube debate was. Because Mark's gospel presents itself as the fulfillment of the new Exodus hope of the Old Testament, it's requisite to briefly rehearse that foundational event and have it before us. At the time of the Exodus, Pharaoh defiantly taunted, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? This question received a definitive answer from the Lord, who demonstrated who he is by going forth as a man of war, Exodus 15.3, performing numerous signs and wonders in the sight of Israel, and doing battle with Pharaoh, his wise men, and the gods of Egypt. All of this culminated in the Lord ransoming the people and delivering them from the land of the dead by rebuking the waters of the Red Sea with the Lord himself crossing over before them and then drowning Pharaoh and his legion in the sea. The Lord then led the people into the wilderness where he miraculously fed them manna, bread from heaven, and then brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai where Moses was told by the Lord in Exodus 24.1, come up the mountain to the Lord. Contextually, the Lord was referring to the angel of his presence, that fully divine person about whom the Lord spoke in the immediate context saying, be on your guard before him and listen to him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. As momentous as all of this was, the people often murmured and tempted the Lord in the wilderness, thereby displaying uncircumcised hearts and ears. By their actions, they asked the same question as Pharaoh, who is this that we should listen to him? All of this pointed to the need for something greater and prefigured what the Lord was going to do in the future. For example, in places like Isaiah 40 through 66 or Malachi 3 and 4, the prophets spoke of the fact that the Lord himself was going to come again and accomplish a new and better exodus. The glory of the Lord that had departed from Israel was going to return and he was going to bring about eternal redemption from sin and death, the defeat of the evil one and his troops, and pour out his spirit to give his people circumcised hearts and ears. Significantly, Isaiah repeatedly referred to this new Exodus hope as good news or gospel. As we turn to Mark, this is exactly what we find. The insipid of the book, the very first line, identifies it as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's my contention in this debate that this title in Mark indicates that Jesus is the true and proper Son of the Father, the Son by nature, and therefore the very coming of the Lord promised in the Old Testament. Mark himself makes this clear by what he immediately goes on to say in verses 2 and 3. Kathos gegraptai, just as it is written, a phrase in Mark that always points back to the explanation of what has just preceded. And in this case, it's a composite citation of Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is what Mark means by the Son of God. As the Son, really and truly, Jesus Christ is the Lord. In fact, this quote from Isaiah 40 is a scene of God announcing in his heavenly court what is to come. And Mark gives these words a prosopological cast. He presents these as words of direct address by the Father to the Son prior to the sending of John. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. In other words, this address to the Son as the Lord took place in heaven prior to the sending of John. 
in light of these programmatic words at the start of the book, where Jesus, the Son of God, is identified by the Father as the promised Lord, it's not surprising that the title, Son of God, is used throughout Mark in a patently divine sense. For example, Christ's sonship is something exclusive to him, as indicated in 111, 97, and 12.6, where it's modified by the word agapetos, which standard lexicons define as the one and only of his class. Jesus is God's son in a unique sense from all who came before him. Even David and his royal descendants, who served as mere types and shadows of the reality embodied only in Jesus. Christ's sonship furthermore entails the possession of transcendent authority over everyone and everything, as seen in his authority over the demons, who already know him, by the way, as the Son of God, and fear that he's come to destroy them, 124 and 57, and also from the fact that Jesus, by this title, distinguished and ranked himself above all the prophets in 12.6 and all men and angels in 13.32. Furthermore, as the Son, Jesus possesses unearthly, heavenly glory that is essential to him, as seen in Mark 9, where he transfigured himself before the disciples. That this glory is heavenly is seen from the fact that his clothes became, quote, radiant, intensely white, as no launderer on earth could bleach them. That this glory was essential to him and not merely reflected glory as a result of being in the divine presence is seen from the fact that he was transfigured before the descent of the Father. It was in this context, and to underscore the significance of it, that the Father then descended and declared, This is my beloved Son. Finally, it was precisely Jesus' claim to be the Son of God that the Sanhedrin in Mark 14 condemned as blasphemy, which can only mean that they thought he was making a divine claim, a claim that is either gloriously true or blasphemously false. Likewise, given the programmatic words of the prologue, which identify Jesus as the Son of God and, as such, the Lord, this is exactly how Jesus is presented in the narrative. For example, in 2.28, Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, a divine institution. In 11.3, Jesus, as the Lord, claimed absolute ownership over the property of others. In 12.37, Jesus claimed to be the very Lord of Psalm 110, and therefore greater than David or any mere son of David. And in 13.35, Jesus referred to his return to the world as the coming of Hakurias te oikos, the Lord of the house. As if these categorical claims to be the Lord were not enough, Jesus even reenacted the events of the first exodus, thereby also anticipating his new exodus redemptive work that he was about to accomplish on the cross. For example, in Mark 4, we're told that Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea, causing them to be still so that his disciples could safely cross over into the wilderness, the exact thing the Lord did at the exodus. Psalm 106, he rebuked the Red Sea and led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. Or again, Psalm 89, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Immediately after this, in Mark 5, Jesus proceeded to deliver the Gerasene demoniac from a legion of demons, causing them to be drowned in the sea, just like the Lord drowned Pharaoh and his legion in the sea. This is then followed in Mark 6 with Jesus miraculously feeding a multitude of Israelites in the wilderness. Mark 4, 5, and 6 then record Jesus doing signature acts of the Lord, things that the Lord alone can do and did do. Mark records Jesus doing them in the exact order in which the Lord did them, and he also uses the precise Old Testament language to describe these things. If you aren't catching what Mark is throwing at you, you might be a Unitarian. And for the sake of those who didn't catch it, Jesus did it all over again. At the end of Mark 6, Jesus once again delivered the disciples from the sea, even saying, take courage, I am, do not fear, which is followed in chapter 7 by Jesus delivering a girl from a demon, one of Satan's troops, and then in chapter 8 by Jesus once again feeding a multitude in the wilderness. Again, if you're not picking up what Mark is putting down, you might be a Unitarian. To cap it all off, after this recapitulation twice over of Exodus-like events, delivering them from the sea, overtoppling Satan's hosts, and feeding the people in the wilderness, they then went up the mountain in Mark 9, where the Father, in the presence of Moses, said regarding Jesus, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. 
the exact thing the Lord told Moses in Exodus 23 with respect to that theophanic person who bears his very name, the one the Father called the Lord, Jehovah, in Exodus 24.1. The words of the prologue, you see, especially verses 1, 1 through 3, are programmatic for the rest of the gospel. Mark announced already at the beginning who Jesus is and what he came to do. He is the divine Son of God and Lord who came to effect a new exodus. And so when we see things in the narrative, the sorts of things I just mentioned, and see people at every turn either objecting to what Jesus does since it involves the exercise of exclusive divine prerogatives or presupposes the possession of incommunicable divine attributes, forgiving sin, knowing the hearts of men, performing a divine work on the Sabbath, or we see people being amazed and dumbfounded that this man wields paramount authority over creation, over the demons, over all sin and disease, over life and death itself, the reader has already been told what the people in the narrative do not yet have eyes to see. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, together with his Father, is Lord, the one Lord of Israel. This is the thesis and plot of the book. Mark has already told the reader in the prologue who Jesus is, and the question on everyone's lips is, who is this? When Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic man in Mark 2, the scribes objected. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except one, God? Mark's answer in the prologue, this is the Lord. Or again, in Mark 11, the chief priests, scribes, and elders ask, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are, and why should we listen to you? Mark's answer in the prologue, he is the Lord. It's because these scribes, these PhDs, only recognize that Jesus is a man. In other words, they were Socinians before their time, that they thought Jesus was blaspheming for saying and doing what could only be said and done by one, God. The rulers of that age did not understand, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The plot is also seen in the case of the masses who hear without hearing and see without seeing and so are left utterly amazed and dumbfounded, wondering what this is all about. In Mark 1.27, for example, they were all amazed and so they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they listen to him. What is this? It's the coming of the Lord. The Lord of glory, the Lord of the Exodus, has returned to his people. In Mark 6, 2, it's written that the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom that's been given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Mark 7, 37, they were utterly astonished, saying, he's done all things well. He makes even those who are deaf hear and those who are unable to talk speak. Why is everyone amazed and dumbfounded? Because they think he's only a man. And everywhere they are described by Mark as deaf, dumb, and blind. The plot is even seen in the case of the disciples who only arrive at a partial understanding prior to the cross and resurrection. In Mark 4, after Jesus rebuked the wind and the sea, the fearful response of the disciples was, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea listen to him? Mark's answer in the prologue, this is the Lord. After feeding the multitude and walking on the water in Mark 6 and declaring himself to be the I am, it says the disciples were utterly astonished for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The same thing is seen again in Mark 8, 17 through 18 and all the way up to the cross. The divine identity of Christ, you see, is the thesis of Mark's gospel, and the failure and need to recognize it is the plot. Over and over again, we're told that the people recognized Jesus as a man, and in some cases, even as a prophet and the Christ, but not as the divine Son of God and Lord, because their eyes were closed, their ears were stopped up, they had stiff necks and hard hearts, something that could only be overcome by Jesus going before his people, becoming their Passover lamb, and passing through the waters of death, thereafter to ascend that heavenly Mount Zion and pour out his Spirit. And you, the listener, if you have ears to hear, do not miss this fact. This is also the plot of this debate. One person in this debate stands on the side of the narrator and is telling you that Jesus is the Lord, who of old delivered the people from the land of the dead, and now has come in the fullness of time to deliver his people from death itself. 
The other person in this debate, like the scribes, the wise men, the philosophers and disputers of this age, believes that Jesus is only a man, or at best, nothing more than a son of David. He stumbles, as you're going to hear, over the fact that Jesus prayed, was tempted, ate, slept, served, and died. And his hope in this debate is that he, by taunting you with these facts and tacitly joining in with the mockery of those who rejected Christ, can thereby crucify and silence Christ's divine claims. But don't you see, while Jesus was certainly a man, Mark's gospel demonstrates that he was a man of war, the Lord Jehovah, Exodus 15.3, Isaiah 42.13, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I'll conclude with that. When the Trendies podcast returns, my opening statement for the negative side. Does the gospel according to Mark teach that Jesus is the one true God? Of course it doesn't. The suggestion is ridiculous. And today I will explain why any careful reader of this gospel can reasonably dismiss any scholarship that focuses on some details in the book and tries to show that the author has sneakily encoded a Jesus is God message into it. And keep in mind that our debate topic today is not, is Jesus more than a mere man? Or is he in some sense divine? Or does the author hint that Jesus pre-existed? No, the question is whether or not this book teaches Jesus to be the one true God himself. Clearly, the answer to that question is no. We can see this by looking at what the book does say, what it doesn't say, and what sort of book this is. Let's start with what the book clearly asserts. Its clear main thesis, contra Mr. Rogers, is that Jesus is God's Messiah, his Christ, also called the Son of God and the Son of Man. This thesis is stated by the narrator, by friendly characters in the narrative, by lots of hostile characters, and by the main character himself, our Lord Jesus, and even by the voice of God himself, who is somebody else, by the way. A high point in the book is the scene where the disciples finally get it, grasping Jesus' true identity. Here Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answer him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Notice Jesus's implicit agreement with Peter's answer. Similarly, in chapter 14, when the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, which is to say the son of God, Jesus answers that he is. In the narrative, Jesus keeps his status as Messiah quiet, revealing it only to a select few. But this book shouts from the rooftops that which was once hidden. Throughout the book, our author proclaims his message over and over again. The point can't be missed. Even someone who sleeps through the middle chapters, but wakes up near the end, will hear a Roman soldier declare upon witnessing Jesus' death that, truly, this man was God's son. And posted on his cross is a true title of God's Messiah, the king of the Jews. From our author's standpoint, Jesus' enemies meant this as a criminal charge, but God meant it as yet another divinely ordained hostile testimony. Is this crucified Jesus the God of Israel, the one true God? Of course he's not. Numerous factors communicate this. First, a Messiah is literally an anointed one, one called, commissioned, and empowered by God for an all-important mission. The anointee is not the anointer. Nor is this unique Son of God the same God whose Son He is. The metaphor wouldn't make sense. Second, the reader needs to approach the book with some common sense. What is the chance that the author would expend all his energy telling us that Jesus is God's Messiah, when in fact he holds to the much stronger and stranger claim that Jesus is God Himself? It's incredibly unlikely. If you read a book about George Washington and the author labors over and over to communicate that Washington was an honest man, 
It is vanishingly unlikely that the author also thinks that the really important thing to know about George Washington is that he was a space alien who had morphed into human form so as to live among us. Third, throughout this book, Jesus is portrayed as a real man. He has a human mother. He's a descendant of King David. And it's a background assumption of Judaism that God is not a man and is not, of course, a descendant of anyone, human or otherwise. Fourth, Jesus' favorite title for himself here is the Son of Man, which literally means a human being, but is also a clear reference to the one like a son of man in the vision of Daniel chapter 7. But this one is not the one God. Rather, in Daniel's vision, this one is brought into God's presence, and God gives him dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This we see fulfilled in Jesus in the vision of Revelation chapter 5. There too, just like in Daniel 7, he's a character in addition to the one God. And the one we see on the throne is the one God. He's introduced in Revelation chapter 4. Fifth, God is not a prophet. And this Jesus in the gospel according to Mark, even though he's greater than the greatest previous prophet, Moses, still as God's Messiah, he's also a prophet. That is a human who speaks God's words to the people. Sixth, the book assumes and implies many differences that distinguish Jesus from his God. Unlike the one true God, Jesus prays to God. Along with his disciples, Jesus sings a hymn to God. Unlike the untemptable God, Jesus is tempted. Unlike the invulnerable and essentially well-off God, Jesus is afraid before his crucifixion and feels abandoned by God when it happens. Unlike the essentially immortal God, Jesus dies. Unlike the essentially omniscient God, there are truths Jesus does not know. Unlike the essentially omnipotent God, sometimes Jesus lacks enough power to do something. While God doesn't need permission or authorization or empowerment from anyone to do anything, Jesus is authorized and empowered by someone else, God, to heal, to exercise, and even to forgive sins. And while God can say, I created the world, Jesus describes someone else as the creator, God, that is, the one he calls Father. And when someone addresses Jesus with the title, Good Teacher, Jesus snaps back, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Clearly, Jesus can be called good. The reader infers that Jesus must have in mind some sort of goodness which he lacks, but God has. Perhaps underived goodness or absolutely perfect goodness, such as would entail absolute immunity to temptation. When this book distinguishes Jesus from his Father, it thereby distinguishes Jesus from God. For the assumption here is that the one God and the Father are one and the same. The one just is the other. The 4th century idea of multiple persons in the one God is nowhere to be found in this mid-1st century book. The famous Shema passage from Deuteronomy 6 is discussed in Mark 12, but Jesus simply agrees with his Jewish interlocutor about it, declining the opportunity to revise Jewish monotheism so as to clue himself, as people say nowadays, in the divine identity. Passing by such deep thoughts, Jesus here simply lets stand the Jewish scribe's statement about God that he is one and besides him there is no other. Notice that God here is a he and a him, a single self, and someone other than Jesus. Nor is there any suggestion or hint that Jesus has a divine and a human nature, so that, for example, he might be all-knowing in his divine nature and limited in knowledge in his human nature. Mark simply doesn't need any such hypothesis. Also missing is any passage that could possibly suggest that Jesus is eternal, that he created the cosmos, or that God created it through him. Nowhere is Jesus described or addressed as God. This Jesus is never portrayed as having some attribute only God can have, such as essential omniscience, omnipotence, eternality, uncreatedness, or aseity. If you think any of those attributes can be found in other New Testament books, and that such passages in those books are evidence that those authors think that Jesus is God— then you need to recognize that their complete absence in this book is also strong evidence that the author does not think that Jesus is God. Because if he thought that, surely he would have clearly indicated it in some such ways. This author never bothers to warn the reader against thinking that Jesus is a mere man, that is, a man who doesn't have a divine nature too. No, not even the transfiguration in chapter 9. Simply, glowing bright white doesn't imply being God. 
This is a kind of glory temporarily given to the man Jesus by his and our God, the one who in this very incident tells the disciples with Jesus, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Neither the narrator nor the characters conclude from this incident that Jesus has a divine nature, and neither should you. Nor do his works show him to be God. The Jesus of the New Testament Gospels does things some assume only God can do. Thus, in Mark chapter 1, the people are amazed that Jesus has authority over unclean spirits. One might suppose this is because Jesus is God himself. But in chapter 6, we see that Jesus has passed on this authority to his disciples, who proceed to cast out demons too. It's clear that neither the disciples nor Jesus cast out demons by their own divine power, but rather by authority and power given from God, Jesus directly and his disciples through him. The general lesson here is that when you see Jesus' followers doing something, even what is normally, quote, a divine prerogative, this means that doing that does not require being the one God or having a divine nature. If it did, we'd have way too many gods. Against this heavy mass of clear facts and plausible assumptions, some learned readers who are sold out to Catholic traditions will try to move heaven and earth to find an implication in this book that Jesus is the one true God. I'll discuss why later. But as you heard at the start of this debate, they grasp at straws and flail ineffectively around the topic, often retreating back to much lesser claims, such that Jesus and God here are closely associated, that both are called Lord in this book, or that Jesus is the Son of God in a unique sense. All true claims, but not to the point. At other times, they argue using unsupportable premises, such as that only God himself can control the wind and the waves, or that God himself can forgive sins, or that only God himself can walk on water. The problem is that it would seem to be an easy thing for the omnipotent God to empower a human being to do such things. In many cases, the speculations are so unhinged that they reveal a misunderstanding of the genre and intended audience of this book. Mark wrote an action-packed, simple narrative, which, as we've seen, is wholly oriented around presenting Jesus as truly God's Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, the Son of David, and the Son of Man. The author hammers home this point clearly and repeatedly, and in several ways, so that it can't be missed, even by a half-asleep listener. Notice I just said listener, not reader. In ancient times, literacy was fairly rare. We should assume that Mark knew who his audience was. It was believers in house churches and small gatherings that would include men and women, young and old, slave and free. Most of the audience then would be listeners, not readers, and the average education level would be very low. As Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth, not many of you were wise by human standards. A competent teacher facing this crowd does not cleverly encode his main or most important message underneath a surface message. A competent writer addressing this crowd doesn't expect people to read between the lines. Rather, he writes punchy, action-packed lines, puts all of his message there writ large. And this is exactly what our author has done. This book was not designed to be a playground for scholars to come up with new ways to try to derive the deity of Christ from it, new ways which were never heard of in ancient times or in medieval times in many cases. It's not for the hint-hunting scholar. It's for the eighth grader. It's for the working mom. It's for the average Joe six-pack. That's the genre. In conclusion, everyone Whatever their theological persuasion should agree that this gospel does not present Jesus as the one God. Yes, even a Trinitarian. Yes, even someone who believes in the deity of Christ. Not every biblical book has to teach all the important truths. It is jarring and odd, to be sure, if Mark should leave out an alleged central truth that Christ is God. But this is simply the book we have, people. A Trinitarian should just say, I guess for some reason this gospel spotlights Jesus' humanity without teaching his divinity. Indeed, most Trinitarian scholars who are actually experts on this book don't go nearly as far as my debate opponent today. Generally speaking, commenters will limit themselves to suggesting that the title Son of God may mean more than Messiah, perhaps, suggesting that Jesus as God's Son is in some sense divine and not a mere man. 
a Trinitarian is well advised to side with these scholars and leave aside overreaching, anachronism crazy, flailing apologetics. Mark is no murmuring occultist. He has actually succeeded in clearly getting across his message that Jesus is God's Christ. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, our 10-minute rebuttals. Lamentably, Dale spent much of his time laboring to demonstrate points that aren't at issue in this debate. As an Orthodox Christian, I adamantly affirm Christ's true humanity. Indeed, my very salvation depends upon it. That's why I began this debate by thanking Christ, my Lord, for giving himself for me. And so talking about Jesus being a descendant of David, talking about Jesus saying and doing other things that bespeak the fact that he is a real man is irrelevant, utterly irrelevant to our debate. Having said that he's a man, in Dale's mind, though, means that Jesus can't be God, just like distinguishing him from the Father in Dale's mind means that he can't be God. But notice that both of these things assume already what I reject and, in fact, refuted in my opening statement. Jesus is a man, but he's an incarnate person. He is the Lord. And since I'm not a Unitarian, it's irrelevant to show that Jesus is distinguished from God. Dale said this is reading 4th century theology back into the New Testament, but of course it's not. Anybody who's read the ancient fathers prior to Nicaea knows that I'm not coming up with things ad hoc here. Irenaeus, for example, in his book Against Heresies, volume 5, said, How can sins be rightly remitted unless the one against whom one has sinned grants the pardon? He's arguing that Jesus is God on the basis of what we read in Mark 2. Novation, in his book on the Trinity, chapter 13, says, If Christ forgives sins, Christ must be truly God, because no one can forgive sins but God alone. So this isn't an anachronistic reading of the uh, of later theology back into the Bible. In fact, Dale holds a theology from the 17th century known as Socinianism. That, I suggest to you, is what's being read back into Mark's gospel. In fact, Dale assumes Unitarianism, but Dale knows that Second Temple Jews were not Unitarians. Second Temple Jews did not, in fact, believe that God could be reduced to a single person, to a blank monad. Now, another thing that Dale does that's reductionistic and just utterly glosses over what's found in Mark's gospel, what I presented in my opening statement, is he tries to reduce the title Son of God, which is a patently divine title. He tries to make it a mere synonym of the title Christ. But it's clear in Mark's gospel that Son of God and Christ are not synonymous titles. For example, in Mark 1.1, when it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Son of God there is not being used in apposition with the title Christ, because the word Christ isn't even being used there as a title, but as part of a compound name. So it's not being used in a titular fashion, and therefore uh, Son of God is not being used as a definition of Christ. It is an additional title for Jesus indicating who Jesus is. When Dale says that Mark 8 is the high point of the book, he's again stumbling over this confusion. It's not the high point of the book. In fact, what Dale calls the high point of the book, astoundingly, is where Peter makes a major face plant. After Peter accurately confesses Jesus as the Christ, he shows that his insight is not yet complete because Peter is immediately thereafter rebuked by Jesus as Satan. So what Dale thinks is Peter arriving at a full and complete picture of Jesus is something that Jesus himself denounced as satanic. Rather, the high point, both literally and literarily, is Mark 9, when Jesus then takes them up the mountain and the Father declares in their hearing, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. 
as I pointed out in my opening presentation, the whole picture here is that of Jesus as a divine person. He is transfigured before the disciples, before the cloud descends on the mountain. So this isn't merely reflected glory. It says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no launderer on earth could bleach them, indicating that it's heavenly glory. This is all prior to the cross and resurrection. So Jesus has essential heavenly glory. And it's in this context that the Father ups the ante and tells the disciples, no, not merely the Christ, but the Son of God, the one to whom all men are to listen. It even uses the exact language used for the Melach Yahweh in Exodus 23, the one whom the Father calls Jehovah in Exodus 24, 1, telling Moses, listen to him. So Jesus is not being identified as Son of God in this reductionistic sense. He is exclusively the Son. All who came before Jesus were but types and shadows of the reality embodied in him. This is why Mark identifies Jesus as the Lord. And he doesn't leave this title uh, out there as something ambiguous. He explicitly ties it to Old Testament texts about Jehovah. Isaiah 40 verse 3 is said to be fulfilled in Jesus. He is the coming of the Lord. He also quotes Malachi 3 verse 1, where the coming one is called Ha-Adon, an exclusively divine title. Repeatedly throughout the book, Jesus even says and does that which God alone does. Dale says that Jesus is not doing things that only God can do. But of course he is. The Old Testament not only says this is what God did, it not only uses the language that's used for God, the statements are even exclusive to God. For example, in Job 9, it says that the Lord, Jehovah, is the one stretching out heaven alone and walking upon the sea as upon a floor. That's what Jesus did in Mark 6, and it says Jehovah alone does that. Now, Dale says Jesus could do this because he was given authority. But nowhere in Mark's gospel does it speak of Jesus being given authority. Everywhere it simply speaks of Jesus having authority. The only time it speaks of anyone being given authority, it's Jesus who gives it. Jesus gave the disciples authority in Mark 3. He gave the disciples authority in Mark 6. And even that was limited in the case of the disciples, but not so in the case of Jesus. For example, in Mark 9, the disciples couldn't cast out a demon, even though they were given authority. And Jesus says, you can only do this by prayer. But Jesus proceeded to cast out the demon without prayer. He simply speaks and it happens. This is why people marveled over Jesus, because he exercised unprecedented authority, the authority of the Lord himself, the authority that the Lord alone had and, and wielded. Again, he does the exact things God does. He does them in the exact same order. The exact same language is used for him. And again, these are signature acts of Yahweh, things that Yahweh alone does. Dale mentioned, you know, Mark's not uh, sneakily coding in things here. I agree. Uh, I mean, there's certainly many things that Mark does that tie in with the Old Testament that the alert reader would pick up that maybe somebody ill-informed about the Old Testament wouldn't. But he also states things quite explicitly. He explicitly calls Jesus the coming Lord in uh, 1.3. He explicitly calls Jesus the Lord in 5.19. He explicitly calls Jesus the Lord in 11.3. He explicitly calls Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath in 2.28. Over and over again, Mark states explicitly what he also states in a narratival way in more implicit fashion. Dale said, uh, you know, if somebody wrote a novel about George Washington and said he was an excellent man, you wouldn't get the impression from that that he was an alien. Well, what if the person in that novel not only told you that he was an excellent man, but also told you that George Washington had antennas that came up out of his head, that sometimes he looked green in a certain light, that some people heard, you know, or saw sights above his house that looked like, uh, you know, rotating bright orbs or what have you. The alert listener would start to think there's something else bizarre going on about this man. And Mark not only does this sort of thing with respect to Jesus, such as when he shows him reenacting the events of the Exodus, but even states these things explicitly. Jesus is the divine son of God. That's why the high priest said it was blasphemy. It was not blasphemy to claim to be the Christ. It was blasphemy to claim to be the divine son of God that fully divine person who together with the Father exercises universal dominion over all creation. 
Indeed, in the same text, Jesus said that he would come riding the clouds of heaven, something used exclusively for God in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, it's God who rides the clouds. Psalm 104, 3, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Jesus is the one who knows the hearts of men, Mark 2, Mark 3, verse 5. Uh, the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8, other passages say God alone knows the hearts of men. So yes, Jesus does things, and it's not sufficient for Dale to say, well, God could give him this authority, because these are things exclusively reserved for God. These are signature acts of God. These are things that God says and does to show who he is. Throughout the Exodus, one of the constant refrains is that God is doing these things so that people would know that he is the Lord. If somebody else could do these things, then these signature acts would be worthless. The very point is, these things betoken the person who does them. They indicate that he himself is the Lord. This is what Jesus says and does throughout Mark's gospel. And that's why, Dale, you see, when you look at the people in the narrative who are objecting to Jesus, they object to Jesus in the exact way that Dale does. Isn't this the carpenter? Uh, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. All right, that's God time, can't Anthony. Die. Yeah, that's kind of hilarious to try to associate me with Jesus's enemies and the Jews. It sounds like the people who agree the most with Mr. Rogers are uh, Jesus's enemies in chapter 2 and the high priest in chapter 14, the people who precisely are not getting it. Notice over and over again, first of all, there are modern misreadings on display here. He in his opening said that the thesis of Mark's gospel is the divine identity of Jesus. Guys, this is just a confused and confusing neologism that has become popular in about the last 20 years. It was invented by a British scholar named Richard Bauckham. Not only is it not part of this book, it's not even part of you know mainstream Christian tradition before 25, 30 years ago. And it's absurd that the main thesis is the divine identity of Jesus. It just isn't. Better scholars don't go so far as to say that clearly Son of God implies uh, having the divine essence, the divine nature. That, in fact, is an argument that is due precisely to Athanasius in the fourth century. That's the guy that invents that argument, that to be a real son, Jesus has to be homo sion with the Father. He has to have the same substance or essence. Even people before, like Origen, Justin, and so on, even Novation and Irenaeus, they don't think he's divine in the same sense that the one God is divine, even though they do speculate about his two natures. Also, notice what Mr. Rogers done. He very much focuses on what he thinks are his ace two passages, which are chapter one, which he totally misunderstands, and chapter nine, the transfiguration. Take the transfiguration first. He claims that this is just a revelation of Jesus's divine essence. Oh, to the contrary. It says, and he was transfigured before them. And commenters like Robert Gundry point out that this is a divine passive. It implies not that Jesus, Gundry says, has a glory hidden at other times by his clothes and flesh. On the contrary, the divine passive in verse 2 and the emphasis on the glistening of his garments point to a glory bestowed from without. Many other commenters very plausibly argue that this is a preview of Jesus's heavenly glory once he is raised and exalted to God's right hand, like you see in Revelation 5, and that indeed is a very plausible reading. Now go back to chapter 1. Again, a fashionable misunderstanding here. I call it the fulfillment fallacy, and uh, the fallacy goes like this. There are statements made about Yahweh in the Old Testament. New Testament author comes along and says that they are fulfilled in Jesus. And the reader says, aha, see, that shows that the author is telling us that God just is Jesus. Not only is this not correct, it's a kind of a beginner's mistake in interpreting the New Testament. Consider Matthew 1. The author says that Jesus' birth is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 7 about a baby named Emmanuel. Well, Emmanuel was a baby in the time of Isaiah. Now, when he says that Jesus fulfilled that, he's not telling you that Jesus is that baby from the time of Isaiah. That would be a weird case of reincarnation. What are they doing with these texts? They're doing, I think, one of two things. They're either viewing Jesus as uh, the one through whom God is acting, and so God does fulfill it himself, but through Jesus. Or sometimes they just seem to think that there is a different meaning encoded by God, a meaning that wasn't known to the human author or to earlier readers. And uh, there are just two fulfillments because there's the kind of the, uh, the meaning that the human author knew, and there's another meaning in play too that in these latter days has finally become known. As many commenters point out, 
when Mark mashes up those three quotations, he changes the wording a little bit so that you don't think that this is God himself, this Jesus who's being announced by John the Baptist. So he changes the me in Malachi 3.1 to your in verse 2. In Isaiah 44, he changes the highway of our God to making his paths straight, that is the Lord, understood as the Lord Jesus. So yeah, chapter 1 doesn't tell you that Jesus is the one God. In fact, Jesus is distinguished from the one God. Jesus is the one that gets baptized. The one God is the one that says, hey, this is my beloved son um, in that scene. See, I'm not going to waste time with all the assuming Unitarianism standard stuff. Prosopological address in heaven before Jesus' birth. He wants to read these words from the prophets uh, as you know, reflecting a conversation before Jesus' incarnation, I guess. Well, there's just no reason to take it that way. All it needs to be is a prediction, a meaning that was hidden at the time, a prediction that's filled in the time of Jesus' and John's ministry. So I agree that there is a new Exodus theme, but uh, look, these arguments that he does, things that only God can do, are completely absurd. To claim that only God can walk on the water would make Peter God. Peter steps out in faith in the Matthew version of walking on the water, and he's not God. Mr. Rogers is just assuming throughout, he's got this theory that Jesus has a divine nature, and he's like, well, look, this is the only explanation of what you see here. Okay, but the theory doesn't really have any foundation in what the author explicitly says. And also, notice that the narrator and the characters don't infer anything about Jesus being God from all these wonderful things. What they do infer is that Jesus' authority is, it says in one place, from heaven. That is, he gets his authority, his mission, his power from God. That's the understanding. The misunderstanding, thinking that Jesus is God himself, I think it goes way back. There have probably always been at least a few people who think that only God can forgive sins and then ridiculously agree with Jesus' critics in chapter 2. Okay, but notice a few things about that incident. The author himself gives no signals that this is supposed to show that Jesus is God. On the face of it, his critics' assumption that only God can forgive is as false as their belief that Jesus has blasphemed. He hasn't blasphemed, nor is it true that God only can forgive. Jesus says the point, actually, that not that he heals in order to show that he's God, but he says, quote, "...that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive." And the reader understands, yeah, authority given by God. The crowd actually gets the point that God has authorized Jesus to forgive, which is why, verse 12, they glorify God, not Jesus, for what just happened. They know that it's God working through him. And interestingly, when Matthew represents this episode in his book, he gives a a little extra crowd reaction element to the story, which seems designed specifically to head off this misunderstanding of agreeing with Jesus's critics. So Matthew writes in Matthew 9, 8, when the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. Right. Humans like Jesus, the human Messiah. And he's just making explicit what is implicit. So yeah, to forgive is a divine prerogative, but it can be shared, as shown by when Jesus authorizes his apostles to forgive in John 20. So we know this is an early Christian belief, that you don't have to be God himself or fully divine to forgive. Our second temple Jews, assuming that God is multipersonal, this is a a kind of a out-there fringe view, I think, that Mr. Rogers has, that Jews in this era were Trinitarian, or at least they think God is multipersonal. I think that's obviously incorrect, and you can see it reflected in this book in chapter 12 and in various bits of other places here and elsewhere in the New Testament, where Jews are referring to God as a single self using singular personal pronouns. There isn't anything in the book which could reasonably be taken as absurdly implying that Jesus, quote, is the same God as his Father, or that they is the same Lord. That's just confusion. Now, about the term Lord, we need to go to the lexicon to help us. There is no meaning of Lord in the New Testament when it refers to or covers God and Jesus, or the Father and the Son. It's used in four ways. It can mean sir. It's a polite term of address. It can mean uh, Lord in the sense of a boss, like Lord of a manor. It can be a substitute for the divine name. In Old Testament quotations, instead of saying Yahweh or trying to transliterate, they just substitute kurios, the Lord. And the fourth meaning is a new New Testament meaning. It's for the Lord Jesus. 
the one whom God, as it says in Acts 2, has made both Lord and Christ. It's the unique Lord under the unique God of the New Testament. When the Trinity's podcast returns are shorter five-minute rebuttals. Disquisitively, Dale began this debate by pretending that if we want to see the deity of Christ here, my position in Mark, then we have to view Mark as somehow sneakily coding things into his gospel. And yet Dale, in order to defend his position in this debate, has told us that when Mark quotes the Old Testament text about the Lord and says that it's fulfilled in Jesus, that this has some meaning encoded by God that Mark recognizes. In other words, Dale's the one who thinks that there's this esoteric meaning to be read into this. That's not my view. That's his view. So he should apply those epithets to himself. Moreover, he can't decide whether the enemies of Jesus are being used by Mark as a foil for the truth, even though they don't intend these things in the way they're saying them. Because at one point he said, uh, you know, the people on the uh, were ridiculing Jesus at the cross, saying he's the king of the Jews when they don't believe that. But that's really true, according to Mark. Well, by the same token, he should agree that when the Pharisees in Mark 2 are saying that only God can forgive sins, Mark is using them as a foil to present what is actually true. This is a signature act of God. Only God can forgive sins that are committed against himself. That's not just something that I'm making up. That's something that the Bible itself teaches. For example, in the book of Isaiah, the Lord says, I, I am the one who blots out your sins and transgressions for my sake. He is the one who forgives sins. The Pharisees were right about that, but they were wrong to say that Jesus didn't have the authority to do it. Now, Dale did try to deal a little bit with the reference in Mark 1, which I'm happy you finally got to. That's Mark's thesis, after all. Uh, And he says that I was engaging here in the fulfillment fallacy. But then he didn't go on to tell us what's fallacious about it. He simply said it's a fulfillment fallacy. Another attempt to try and deal with this was to say that this involves double fulfillment. That is, for example, in uh, Matthew 1, he says Jesus is the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. But Emmanuel was a child at the time of Isaiah. Prove it. That's not true. I don't grant the whole notion of double fulfillment. That's something made up by people who don't know how prophecies are relevant in the past to their original audience and somehow fulfilled in the future. So Dale's going to have to uh, put up the evidence or simply uh, clam up at this point. And notice again that Dale says that I'm just reading things into the text. I'm finding things encoded there. And he's just reading the, the surface level meaning of the text. Well, what happens when he looks at Mark 1.3? Mark 1.3, quoting the Old Testament about the coming of the Lord, says it's fulfilled in Jesus. Mark says, prepare the way of the Lord. Dale says this means that he was preparing the way for the one through whom the Lord was going to act. That's not what the text says. That's something read into the text. This is eisegesis, folks. It's not exegesis. Mark makes it explicit. The coming one is the Lord. Dale said in Mark 9, the transfiguration is not proof that Jesus has inherent heavenly glory because rather it uses the divine passive. It says that he was transfigured before them. Dale is here assuming what, you know, he keeps talking about what's modern, what's not modern. Uh, The whole notion of a divine passive is only about 75 years old and it's been thoroughly debunked. In fact, throughout Mark's gospel, passive verbs are used to refer to things that Jesus did, not the Father. For example, in Mark 141, Jesus said to the leper, be cleansed. It's a passive verb, but it was Jesus who cleansed the leper. In fact, the leper said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. So it uses a passive verb for something Jesus did. So when it says Jesus was transfigured, the fact that it's passive is irrelevant. It refers to an action performed by Jesus before the Father descended on the mountain. He said uh, in an effort to support his Unitarian assumption, which he said he wasn't going to defend, he's just going to pass over it, but he nevertheless did appeal to Mark 12, saying in Mark 12, the Jews were simply Unitarians. They quoted the Shema, and uh, you know, but he assumes that these Jews are understanding that in a 17th century Unitarian way. <laughs> 
And even if that were the case, it should be obvious that Jesus puts them on the horns of a dilemma by immediately thereafter citing Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus said to them, how can he be David's son if David called him Lord? Notice this is the very conundrum that Dale faces in this debate. Dale said that Jesus can't be the Lord because he's a descendant of David. Jesus turns the tables and says, how can he be a son of David when David called him Lord? Dale says that when the, the high priest condemned Jesus for blasphemy, uh, you know, they're wrong, that this isn't blasphemy. Well, I agree that Jesus is not blaspheming, and that's only because Jesus is right. Dale's agreeing with them that, that Jesus is not the divine Son of God. I'm agreeing with them that if he were not the divine Son of God, it would be blasphemy. And obviously, Mark is saying that Jesus was claiming this, and they were wrong to uh, reject his claim. Uh, he appeals to other gospels. In All right, Anthony, that's time and... right there. That's time right there. Yeah, so again, notice he's driving a stake down in Mark 1 and Mark 9, misreading them and trying to make those the key to the whole book. My view is based on looking at the entire book and looking at what's the clear message. Other scholars who believe in the deity of Christ and who believe that Mark teaches the deity of Christ, they just flat embrace that there is a hidden message in addition to the surface message. Mr. Rogers can't even see clearly as to what the surface message is, so absurdly he's saying that the surface message is that Jesus is the one God himself. I'm not saying, by the way, that every passive means that it's God who's the actor. Nobody thinks that. I don't see how you would establish, and he hasn't given us any argument other than saying that Jesus becomes bright before God speaks. I don't know how you would establish that that brightness is essential to Jesus. How would you rule out that there is a divine glorification happening before God speaks? I don't know. That's why that's not much of an argument. Now, he doesn't understand the fulfillment fallacy. Bizarrely, this is another fringe view. He doesn't think that Jews in this time thought there could be multiple meanings of the Old Testament and multiple fulfillments. This is just a standard view. And what I called the fulfillment fallacy, I invented the term, but it's a standard view that this is a misunderstanding. The general theme of this, and he should know this, is the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Here's another example of the fulfillment fallacy, in case you don't understand it. Psalm 110.1, the original context, all scholars agree, is that this was a royal psalm. So when Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, the words my Lord originally referred to David or some king of Israel, right? And when New Testament authors quote it, my Lord refers to Jesus. Now, is that their way of saying that Jesus is this former king of Israel? No, it's ridiculous. It's that there was a meaning that applied at the coronation of a king or some such context. And then there's another meaning, which was known only to God, uh, which is fulfilled by the exaltation of Jesus. About Psalm 110.1 and that uh, thing about David's Lord, in a way, this is kind of the most unclear passage in the book, because in the argument, Jesus just lets this question stand and they don't know how to answer it. So the question is, what's the conclusion that Mark thinks is so obvious that the original listeners would know about it and draw it so that Mark doesn't have to bother to say how it is that Jesus can be called Lord even though he's uh, the son of David, or rather the Messiah, who is Jesus? The answer, I think, is what you see in Acts chapter 2, you know, that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Jesus has been made David's Lord by being exalted to God's right hand. And he is a son of David, meaning a descendant of David. Nevertheless, he's greater than his mighty, uh, famous, important prophet, king, ancestor. He's greater than all other humans because he's been given the name above all names, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Commenters point out that the point here is not that Jesus is God, but it's a series of three passages in which he's criticizing the views of the scribes. And basically, he's saying that this category, Son of David, is inadequate by itself. It's inadequate to describe the Messiah, especially in light of the Messiah's, you know, kind of godlike elevation to God's right hand. 
blasphemy. I don't think you should draw too many conclusions based on accusations of blasphemy in this book. It's kind of unclear what these guys think blasphemy is. I think Mark's point is that actually these turkeys are the ones blaspheming. I believe when he, he's getting taunted on the cross, the translations don't translate it as blaspheming, but it's the same uh, Greek word that they're blaspheming by mocking Jesus on the cross, right? Insulting God. Not because Jesus is God, but because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself to, you know, say this is a phony or a guy inspired by demons or something really is an insult to God. And that's kind of the core meaning of blasphemy. It's like insulting God. Next week, the rest of my debate with Anthony Rogers. I think that my opening statement is a powerful one, and I don't think that Mr. Rogers really felt the force of some of those arguments. What did you think? Let us know what you thought about this portion on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org or in the Trinities Podcast Facebook group. This week's thinking music has been the track Black Keys by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.